Welcome to Adaptation, the podcast that dives into all things self-optimization and self-discovery, helping you be your best inside and out. I'm your host, Steve Katazi, and today we have the captivating Dr. Bill Schindler, who is a renowned field and experimental archaeologist, an anthropologist, and educator, joining us for what is a fascinating discussion, an important conversation about our species evolution and the significance that our nutritional and tool-making decisions have had on our evolutionary course. It's not often do you get a chance on a platform like this to explore our history, our prehistoric history, where we came from, from our earliest resemblance of our species through to the modern Homo sapien. And what happened in between that? What made us the most dominant species on the planet? And I think this really is a conversation that's really about necessitating the need to respect our ancestral and prehistoric nutrition and tool-making habits and how that has led to optimum human health. And it's that optimum human health that is quite often lacking in today's society. But we can reclaim it if we respect the past. Honestly, guys, whilst you may think this is somewhat fringe, and not in line with our discussion of be your best and self-optimization, it absolutely is. Our evolutionary backdrop tells so much as to how we need to operate. And this conversation alone is going to give you so much of that context. We cover off so, so much. It's a two-hour episode, and hey, it needed to be that long. We condensed seven million years in just a couple of hours. I think Bill did a fantastic job. But what do we cover? Well, the show notes are going to give you a full rundown, but here's a quick little look. We're going to get to know Bill a little bit more, and he's a fascinating character. Uh, It's interesting to hear his epiphany, uh, his journey with food personally, his National Geographic appearance, and much more. But then we get into the depths of our history. Firstly, starting with understanding the relationship between prehistoric technology and food and how both of these things have led us to the position of thriving as a species. We talk about how can one of the biologically weakest species on the planet thrive? I ask the question, did we evolve from our current day primates, the ones that we see in the trees today? And then talking about trees, we talk about our evolutionary tree. Bill does a fantastic job of giving us a quick plotted history through the epics, the pre-homo species, the homo species, and what has led us to the modern-day Homo sapiens. We then cover off how tools, scavenging, hunting, fire, and social skills brought on a massive explosion in Homo brain and body size. Then I ask the question, why was fat, organ, meats, and blood so pivotal to our human evolution? Then Bill drops an absolute bombshell, a profound bombshell, that you really need to listen to, which is around Our existence as a species today depends exclusively on the use of technology. And without that technology, we would not be. That's thought-provoking stuff. And from there, we double-click into processing foods because that's what we do best. Actually, we're one of the only animals in the animal kingdom that processes our foods prior to digestion. And it's that skill that has unlocked so much potential. So we understand what food processing means to Bill and what it meant to us prehistorically. He talks through the various techniques we've used in the past, how some of those are familiar techniques still today. And if that wasn't enough, 
we cover off some specifics that I found really, really interesting, which is, should humans be eating dairy? Should humans be eating eggs? And what are Bill's views on the vegan diet? Is it a proper human diet? Are we anatomically suited to being meat eaters? Or are we herbivores that have just taken the wrong path? So without further ado, let's get straight into this with the fascinating, highly credentialed and inspiring Dr. Bill Schindler on all things human evolution and what we need to do today to thrive as a species. So Bill, I am absolutely honoured and so excited to have this conversation. Um, Bill Schindler, guys, if you don't, if you're not aware of uh, Dr. Bill Schindler, he is an anthropologist and archaeologist. Um, and what I've I've kind of picked up from this guy over the last few months have been his appreciation, deep appreciation, learning and promoting of ancestral wisdom. He's got such a strong authority in the space of uh, anthropology, archaeology, human evolution, and ancestral practices as it relates to food, and I think he leads by example. I think you do anyway, Bill. I mean, you, you, you've you got three kids. I, I hear so many good things about, you know, just generally the, the loving and nourishing environment in which you create your family. Um, I love some of your ideals and your values in which you bring up your kids and again, influenced by ancestral wisdom. So this podcast is all about being your best. It's all about thriving. And I feel that there's such, I, I know I have a very strong bias not towards religion, but evolution, <laughs> and how evolution and nature have so much to teach us as it relates to thriving, both physically, socially, mentally. And um, yeah, I don't think we can disconnect the two and expect great outcomes long term. So I can't wait to have this conversation with you, Bill, because I'm sure both the audience and myself are going to get grounded on what it what it means to be human and look after our bodies and thrive. So does that sound like a good kind of frame for our discussion, Bill? That sounds like a fantastic frame for our discussion. It's, it's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me on. And I look forward to our discussion as well. Thank you. Cool. So why don't we give the audience a quick snapshot of, of you academically, vocationally, and what drives your work? Absolutely. I'd, I'd be happy to. So um, I, I have my fingers in a lot of different pots, as I think everybody uh pots places you know i think everybody in this in this realm does at some level and i think it's very important to do so because this sort of holistic view is is one that can really teach us things uh, about our food and our place in the world as humans that um uh, we, we really a place that we really really need to get to so in an academic sense i'm a trained prehistoric and experimental archaeologist so what that means is most of my uh, field archaeology work is focused on prehistoric sites and they range anywhere from you know before the written record and depending on where you are in the world that day changes here in eastern north america that's at least 500 years ago and uh, my work spans uh, back in, in many ways millions of years the um However, the uh, experimental archaeology part of it is what's really, really relevant, I think, to, to this discussion and my outlook and approach to food. So as an experimental archaeologist, I've been trained by so, some of the best primitive technologists around the world in all sorts of prehistoric technologies. So it'd be things like uh, 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 stone tools, uh, prehistoric ceramics, 
fibers, uh, nose to tail approaches to animals and butchery, you know, the fire, the, all, all of those sorts of things. And, and what I do in that part of my work uh, is I test hypotheses about our understanding of the archaeological record and test them by doing, right? So if somebody found, if, if an archaeologist found a bit of a stone tool, they, they could bring it to me and say, okay, can you try to figure out how this was made, how it was used, how it functioned, how useful it was? And my job would be to replicate that tool using the same materials and techniques, um, create hypotheses, test those hypotheses, use them in a variety of different different ways, and then use that to better understand the archaeological record. And I've been in that space for a very long time. Um, but the I, I think uh, a little bit about me, uh, if, if it's okay for a moment, on, on a personal level, my, my journey with food and my archaeological um, and, and academic experience coming, it really collided about 15 or 20 years ago, uh, which is really a lot of the reason why I'm here now talking with you. So if we have a second, can I talk a little bit about Please my do. Yeah, yeah. Sure. As long as you Great. need. Sure. So I um, I grew up in Monmouth County, New Jersey, on the East Coast of North America, about five about five miles from the beach. Um, what's really important here is that I also it was very it was a suburb of New York City. I live right by the train line to New York City. All my friends' parents worked in New York City, uh, commuted. A lot of them, both parents did, did you know, left at five o'clock in the morning and came back at nine o'clock at night. And um, I was in a very suburban area. And it was very important to my father, even though I was in a, a very suburban area, to get me outside as much as possible. So he had me hunting and trapping and fishing and camping, um, which often required extensive driving or travel to do that. Um, but it was very important to him to connect me with, uh, my environment in these ways that were really important to him and quickly became very important to me as well. And my mother always had me in the kitchen and was doing an incredible job with the information she had in the 1970s about how to raise a healthy family. She was listening to all the government um, recommendations. Um, you know, we were told that we should be eating margarine. <laughs> we should be doing all, you know, low fat, all those sorts of things that, you know, we obviously feel the effects of now. Um, she was following because we were told that was very, very healthy. But the most important part of that is she had me in the kitchen. So I grew up in in, in a household where uh, both of my parents were sharing with me what they loved. I was connecting with my food at some level and I was connecting with my environment at, at a different level. Um, but at the same time, I had a really unhealthy relationship with food. I was a pudgy, overweight kid that got made fun of and beat up on a fairly regular basis in elementary school, elementary and middle school, really. So my, uh, I looked at food, even though I had these wonderful experiences in the woods with my father and in the kitchen with my mother and, and actually my grandmother's, I, I had a very unhealthy relationship with food. And when I looked at food, I looked at it as something that made me ugly or made me fat or made me weird in a way that other kids didn't like me and or, or made fun of me. And obviously that was a very unhealthy way to grow up thinking about food. And then later I found uh, athletics in high school and I and I realized that um, uh, I could get my body in, in very good at least visual shape by working out and wrestling was a great way to do that. And I, and I, and I became outwardly fit fairly quickly, right? I was, I was, I fell in love with wrestling. I dove head first. Um, quickly I adopted that as the, as the only sport that I played. I played it year round. Um, I practiced up and I used to take the train into New York city, uh, to practice a couple times a week during the season at the New York athletic club. I was training two or three times a day minimum during the season. And, um, my body, again, I looked fit, 
but I was still following a diet that was one that I realized now was not necessarily the healthiest one for me. It was a very high carbohydrate diet, carbo loading, those sorts of things that we were doing really in the 80s um, and, and the early 90s. And as you can imagine with wrestling, as with boxing and some other sports that are like that, especially then I had a completely different unhealthy relationship with food, right? I was restricting calories, running around in rubber suits to lose massive amounts of weight uh, right before weigh-ins. And then um, I, I went to Ohio State. I was recruited to wrestle there as a division one program. And that relationship with food got compounded even even more. So I was when I, when I did make varsity there, I was I was losing 21, 22 pounds a week in water weight. And then Bring, oh, it, it was act, it was and, and we can talk about that later if you like, because it was even that system was was crazy. But again, I looked fit. I. Um, I was performing, but I like to say now that I look back on it, I was performing uh, well, despite my diet, not as a result of my diet. Um, and then after I after I. Uh, Long story, but I ended up graduating at a different college where I also wrestled. That's where I met my wife. Uh, we got married right after graduation uh, in 2000. And um, and then my you know, I wasn't working out the same way any longer. Uh, and I, my my body went back to the way it was prior to wrestling, because really nothing about my diet had changed that much. It was just the big difference was I was exercising massive amounts for, uh, you know, for when, I, when I was wrestling and. I started to experience all sorts of other issues, uh, uh, unbelievable, terrible gut health. And I remember driving with my wife, if we go to a restaurant and I vividly remember if we were going to a restaurant, I would look as we were driving to the restaurant to pick out uh, fast, uh, uh, gas stations or McDonald's or places that I knew had bathrooms because I could never make it home from eating dinner without having to stop at least once to go to the bathroom. I would completely lose dinner. Uh, and this, this went on for a little while. Now, at the same time, and this is where the kind of two worlds collide at one point, you know, I had been uh, infatuated with archaeology. I and, and the main reason was because I had such an incredible experience with my father in the woods. Uh, I didn't realize what that connection really was, but I, I didn't know at the time what that connection was. But in addition to connecting with him on a real meaningful level, I was connecting with my environment and my food on a really cool level in the woods. And uh, even though that didn't comprise a major part of my diet growing up, being out there and having the ability to, you know, see your your uh, whatever you were going to eat through from beginning to end was very powerful. Uh, but I wanted it to be even more powerful. So instead of uh, going out and and buying shotgun shells and buying a license and going out and hunting, I wanted a little bit more from from, from that. So I started bow hunting, and then later on. I wanted to start making my own bows and making my own arrows, and 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 I got into that and sort of went into that deep, and that was fantastic. But eventually, I realized that if I was going to do this right, if I was going to get my food the way my ancestors did, I needed to also learn how to make stone tools and make stone tips for these arrows. And uh, that's that's the, the actual reason I turned to archaeology because I wanted to learn how people in my area made this exact same arrowheads from the same rock that uh, I still had there and hunted deer, say, you know, a couple thousand years ago. And I wanted to be able to do the same thing. And I found those answers in the archaeological record. And that's that's sort of how archaeology came into my life. And I continued to follow that for a while. But here's the important key where it came together. When I started having kids, 
um, I, I remember one day I was outside in the garage. I was banging on my uh, on, on rocks and I was replicating some tool. I don't remember what it was. And my wife came out and it was a much longer conversation than this. But in essence, it was, hey, I need you to come into the house. And I'm like, yeah, I'll be in in just a couple of minutes. And she says, no, no, no. I need you to like really come in, like come in and stay. You have a family. You have a baby daughter. Can you bring your work? I mean, you are so passionate about what you do and it's so important to you. Can you bring that into the house, not only physically, but also in a way that can benefit the family? Now, certainly this wasn't one conversation, but this went on for a while. And she was 100 percent right. I mean, why would why would I spend so much time and energy and effort being so passionate about doing something that would take up so much of my time if I couldn't directly help my family and myself? And I spent a lot of time thinking about it. And what I came to realize from that moment, really, that that moment when she came out there really forms the 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 central theme into the way that I approach food and diet and health today. And this is exactly what it is. That, that I realize. Oh, so, sorry, I was just going to say that that is beautiful and it's profound, and I completely relate to that. I feel that I'm going on a similar journey, where you know, you know, the male obsessive kind of you know, A type <laughs> personality just kind of getting thrown into your work because you're passionate about it is very, very powerful, but it can be very destructive too if it's not aligned to the values of your family and if what you can obsess about adds value to your family, both in terms of learning, teaching, nourishing, love. Wow, that's a great place to be. And it's, it's amazing to hear that you found that. And, and again, it was, and thank you, and, and I completely agree. It was not as simple as one conversation and I woke up the next morning and figured it all out. But <laughs> I do, you know, my, my wife and I make an incredible team for a lot of different reasons. Uh, but in addition to all the love and respect and, and all the other uh, parts of, of everything about our relationship that form the basis of it, one of the really cool things about our relationship is that I, my head is buried deep in the past. And I mean the deep, deep, deep past, millions of years, years ago past. And my wife, uh, she's um, the uh, supervisor of special ed education in the nearby county school system. And her focus is on modern technology and how to use modern technology in the classroom to help students with special needs, right? So our, our outlook, our, our, when you say technology to me and say technology, they seem like completely different things. And I, for a long time, growing up, run out in the woods, never come back to civilization, just live in the middle of nowhere, build something, you know, and live a happy life like this. And for a while, when we started having a family, I almost wanted to do the same thing with our family, like just escape, you know, this idea, let's just get away from all the nonsense and live a life that we want to live. And there, there could potentially be value in that. But what she uh, one of the things that she does with me is she pulls me back into a modern sense of reality. This, mm. you know, if we you know, our kids are going to live in a modern world, they need to learn to navigate this world. And whether that is a dietary landscape world where they need to navigate, you know, birthday parties and school parties and restaurants with their friends or just how do you relate to other people running, running away into the middle of the woods on top of a mountain to live may be a very healthy way to live as a family unit for a period of time, but they would have a very difficult time reentering modern life, right? So plus she said, you're not going to help anybody. You know, if you live up on the top of a mountain in the middle of nowhere and don't communicate with anyone else, if your work is valuable at all, you're helping nobody else. Absolutely. 
So we have that dynamic that I, I think is, it has really helped me form my approach to food and diet in many different ways. Brilliant. Um, but the way that the way what, what I learned from that experience with my wife when she came out into the garage uh, is when I really started to think about what I had been doing now for decades. I mean, I had run around all over the world learning from amazing people how to make stone tools, how to replicate prehistoric pots, how to build different types of uh, fire and utilize fire in different ways. Uh, what I realized was every, almost every single prehistoric technology for three and a half million years is, has something to do with food. It has something to do with food, how we get food, how we process food, how we cook food, how we store food, how we redistribute food, how we prepare all of it. And I'm th when I'm thinking to myself, I, I have been doing all of these things for so long and I never realized that that was the link. And if that is all true, which I wholeheartedly believe it is, then there is incredible power in understanding those technologies, the timeline of those technologies, how the appearance of those technologies relate to changes in our diets and those changes in our diets relate to changes in our anatomy and in our culture. Uh, it became incredibly powerful. And literally, the in my mind, the creation of these technologies transformed our diets. And as a result of the transformation of those diets, which is a result of the development of these technologies, we created ourselves. We became human both biologically and culturally as a result of these. So, um, you know, I, I know we're going to spend the majority of, uh, of this conversation talking about those technologies and how it relates, but that's a really powerful way to think about this. So when I realized that that was the case, I said, wow, I, I can help my family. Like all that I want to do is, is, have this family where, you know, the most important thing is love and respect. And another important component of it is, is health and nourishment. And I can, and I can use this to help define how I nourish my family. And it's been a journey. I've, I've been learning the entire time and I'm, I'm going to continue to learn my entire life and still only, you know, touch the tip of the iceberg. But that is the basis for how I look at, uh, look at food and diet and health today. And that's why, uh, and how I got to this place. But I guess the only final piece to that before we really dive in deep to what those pieces are is um, what when I realized that the archaeological record holds incredible um, keys to understanding our dietary past and our dietary needs and how we can achieve them best. Uh, and I so I archaeological records there. Then the ethnographic record is, is also there. So the ethnographic record is, is studying living cultures still today in different parts of the world. Um, I realized that there was a huge, huge value in that, obviously. And then the final piece was bringing this all together. You know, if, if I'm going to do all this work and, 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 and write a book that four people would read, I'm not really doing anything or just and do nothing but write peer reviewed papers that, you know, only members of the academic community might, might, might really have access to. I'm not really doing anybody any good. What I need to do is do more than just make this a theoretical exercise or an academic exercise. What my focus is and has been for a while now is to take these lessons and translate them into something that is accessible and meaningful and relevant in our modern kitchens, right? That's the way we're going to change, um, change lives. That's where we're going to improve diet and health. So uh, what I realized, is even though I've been cooking my whole life, I was missing that was that was the piece of this puzzle I was really really missing. So I started to um, 
tried to get sh- uh, trained as an actual chef several years ago. And, and I've uh, got trained at the Italian Culinary Institute in Calabria, Italy. I've done work at the uh, School of Artisan Food, which is not far from you in Nottinghamshire, and worked with some experts around the world and things like cheese and sourdough breads and butchering and the, and, the, and the like. So my focus is to take all of this, put this together in a way that we can actually take these lessons and not just read about them and think about them, but apply them in our kitchens, in our modern lives. Yes. Love it. Love it. You just said two things there. That I thought, like, wow. The first thing you said, and I think this is profound, is you said, we would not be human without technology. Now, just stop and think about that for a second. We would not be human without technology. And we're going to talk about those technologies in a second. But I think it's an important point to think about in our in our life today and how we think about technology today. Technology means something very different today. But again, we wouldn't be human if we weren't leveraging all the technologies that make our days uh, look and feel the way they are. So I thought that was profound. And then the second thing, uh, I was just kind of been going through my mind since you've been speaking is, wouldn't you be an amazing person to have around? Uh, everywhere, you know, I, I get lot, <laughs> you know, car breaks down, we get lost in the jungle, we're on a d- desert island, <laughs> uh, need someone to help me cook and, you know, buy fine food, you know, make it taste good. Wow. Like, yeah, you, you would be fantastic on one of those um, programs where you know you're stuck on a desert island and you just have to fend for yourself have you ever done anything <laughs> like that yeah so have you seen the, the show i did for national geographic uh, i haven't no I, i've heard you talk about it but i haven't seen it no yeah so this is it, it, it's it, it's really funny and, I, and i'll give you a really quick lead-up story to it which you may hear me talk about before but uh about five or six years ago when naked and afraid first came out have you seen naked and afraid there's there's a british version isn't there uh, I haven't seen it. Sorry. Oh. Sorry. So I've I'm, I'm uh, been doing a terrible job as a host. <laughs> no, 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 no. It's, it's, it's actually, well, anyhow, it's, it's a, it's a, it's, it's a show that came out about five or six years ago. Uh, and they take two people, a, a man and a woman who have supposedly never met one another, strip them down naked and stick them in the middle of some extreme environment in the world. And they have to survive for 28 days. And they're each allowed to bring one thing with them. Now, we watched a little bit of it in the house. They blur out, obviously, the private parts and all. But the reason that you know, certainly the network did it because they were looking to get ratings and they, they were jumping on the survival TV genre theme. And, 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 and also they're taking two people and stripping down naked and the whole thing. And people would watch it, excuse me, because of that. But what I liked and which is really a, a, a central theme that I think we'll talk about today as well in this conversation is that. You know, it really shows the role that technology plays in human survival and human um, uh, subsistence. So what's crucial to my point of view to this um, uh, to everything that I that I do now are, are these two points. And, I, and we're going to bring them up hopefully over and over again throughout the, the, the course of this conversation. But the first thing is that I am fully convinced and, and, and if the listeners can just for a minute um, shed the sort of cultural baggage we have about how we feel about ourselves as humans and being at the top of the food chain and being these incredible beings. If we can shed that for just a minute, I think we'll get a lot more out of out of the conversation that that's going to ensue. But so these are the two things I think we have to have to realize. The first is that humans are biologically one of the weakest species on the planet. That we we have you know we can't run very fast, we can't swim very fast, we can't jump very high, we can't dig into the ground efficiently, we can't fly, we can't do all of these things. 
and we celebrate. What's that? We're pretty rubbish, really. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we are. Truly, we are rubbish. And, I mean, the only thing going for us is our incredibly large brains. And the, the the other byproduct of that is the most painful and dangerous childbirth of any animal on the planet. But so if you if you think about the fact that we are that incredibly weak, physically weak as a species, and think about that, how that translates into food. I mean, how many things, how much food can you get from the environment without any technology or tools whatsoever? Immediately farming is gone. Right. So farming is gone whatsoever. Hunting, for the most part, is is completely gone. And you're talking about some some selective foraging for plants which have you know a little bit of seasonal fruit, a little bit of seasonal vegetables, and maybe some insects. But the fruits and the vegetables you're eating have to be um, you know non-toxic at all. They have to be completely safe to consume. And when you think about that, our diets without any technology at all is incredibly limited. Now. What's even more important is when you consider even when we can get resources, right, our, our, our digestive tracts are probably, again, one of the weakest. I hate I hate to talk in superlatives like this, but we have one of the weakest digestive tracts and most inefficient digestive tracts of any animal on the planet. In fact, our digestive tract is only 60 percent the size of what it should be using calculations of a similar size primate. So even within our own family, so to speak, our digestive tracts are that incredibly inefficient. So when we do take resources and put them into our mouths, our ability to safely make the most of the uh, of the nu- nutrients that are in that food is incredibly compromised. I mean, it's offset. So that's my perspective. So one of the things I liked about that show was that it showed that you can't do anything without making tools first, right? That show was 28 days long. They filmed for 28 days because it takes that long to get 42 minutes worth of footage for a 42 minute show. Cause you don't do anything, right? If you're in a survival situation and have no tools, either make a tool or you, or you try to go to sleep and make it through and conserve energy. You don't do anything. So anyhow, that show's going on. And, um, you know, the quick, the quick part of the story is my students kept busting my chops to try to get me to be on that show. Um, and I wanted nothing. I'll watch it, but I, I didn't really uh, care to, to be on it. I didn't want to leave my family for a month at a time and sit and get infested with bugs and whole nine. But um, uh, and starve. And, you know, it, it was it was very limited in the way, you know, my my what I like to do is take these technologies and find ways to make lives better. And that show for what it was was fine. But, you know, I, I didn't want to go into a survival situation. I'm more about the subsistence and resilience piece. So anyhow, they're busting my chops. And one day I, I finally I, – I wanted to save a little bit of face with them. I didn't want to tell them I, I really didn't have a whole lot of desire to be on it. So I figured my out would be to go to my wife and I'd say, Christina, what do you think about me being on Naked and Afraid? And she'd immediately squash it and say, there's absolutely no way you're going in the middle of the woods with somewhere in some part of the world naked with some woman. And then I could go to the students and say, hey, I wanted to do it, but my wife said no. So I went to her and I said, hey, what do you think about me being naked and afraid? And she thought about it for a minute and she looks at me and she said, it'd be OK. Mm-hmm. And I said, it'd be OK? What are you talking about? You know, you've seen the show. I'd be naked with a woman in the middle of nowhere in the woods. She said, whoa, whoa, think about this. Wait a minute. You've seen the show. Every now and then, usually it's a male. Somebody on there has a little bit of an amorous idea about what would happen over those 28 days. And within a day of no food, no water, getting bit by bugs, getting covered in poison ivy, whatever it is, sleepless nights, it's the last thing on their mind. And she said, that's probably the safest place for somebody to be. <laughs> <laughs> and you'll be on telly, so sure, there'll be yeah, evidence. Yeah, you should be on telly, it's all recorded. <laughs> 
I said, oh, you're absolutely right. So, um, you know, what's really interesting about that, and I know we're going on a lot of different tangents, is that when you think about our past, because she's 100% right, um, not only in the fact that are you not even thinking about, you know, having some sort of relations, but even if you did, a survival state is not a state where people usually, or, or animals usually conceive, carry their young to full term, and produce viable offspring that then grow up and then do the same thing themselves, right? So one of the things I'd like, myths I'd like us to dispel is this idea that our, our ancestral past was one of survival. It was not. If it was one of survival, you and I would not be sitting here having this conversation because our species would be extinct. Our, you know, survival means you are making it through a situation. Survival does not mean that your species is making it through generations and generations. That only happens in sub at least subsistence, if not doing something better. So when we think about our dietary past, in order for us to be sitting here having this conversation, we were doing really, really well. Mm. We were, we were getting meeting, if not exceeding our nutritional needs in a way that allowed us to, uh, to be crass, thinking about having sex, having sex, carrying babies to full term. And those babies were doing the same thing when they, when they grew up. That is how, th th that is what our dietary past was like. But the, the more quick, the more, um, uh, directly answer your question at the same time, this was happening. Um, I got contacted by national geographic to, uh, to do this show called the great human race, which was, uh, a, a very valuable learning experience for me. And I think one that uh, allowed me to um, put into practice all these things I had been thinking about for food. In fact, it came at a perfect time. So about five years ago, National Geographic came up with the idea for a show called The Great Human Race, where they were they took me and this uh, my co-star, Kat Bigney, and placed us in 10 different places around the world, situations. Um, starting in Tanzania two and a half million years ago, the idea was that we were going to um, – replicate what life was like during the, the 10 most important um, times in our evolutionary past where something happened. We created a technology or discovered something that allowed us to take that next step or overcome a hurdle. And um, the, the idea was we, we would go into these places and my job was to replicate the technologies from that time period. And we were supposed to live for a period of about eight days at a time using only those technologies from that time period in the same place that it took place in the past and uh, to, to do everything from to, to live, to get our food, to shelter ourselves, to get water, you know, everything. And it was amazing because I not only got to live with the traditional people in that area for a week or so at a time before we filmed, but when we, when we actually filmed, uh, I was eating as close as humanly possible to the diets that our ancestors were eating at these different time periods. And I know eight days is not a massive amount of time, but it's a long enough period of time to feel the effects of the food that you're eating, what, what it has on your body, whether you're starving or whether you're feeling nourished or whether you're feeling satiated or whatever, whether you're feeling sick. And you know, we are, I like to say, we're the only two people that have ever lived all the important time periods in our evolutionary past. And I came out of this experience with this, this, this new idea. Like not only does this work academically and on paper, but it's real. This is a real way to approach food and diet. Amazing. Well, I, I think you've gone above and beyond proving that you've got the credentials to have this conversation. So <laughs> let's, let, let's get into it. Let's go way back when, let's go back sure. to, to the beginning. So, um, I, I think, you know, and I've held this uh, belief too, that there's this simplistic logic that 
we evolved, evolved from the primates that we see today. And um, I'd like for you to maybe correct that understanding. And if possible, and I know it, this is a, a, a potentially long answer, uh, and take as long as you wish, but um, yeah, as efficiently as possible, maybe let's just map out the evolutionary history of humans. And what, do we, do we, you know, are we direct descendants from primates that we see today? And, you know, what, what are the bits in between that got us to the point of us being who we are as Homo sapiens? Sure, I'd be happy to. So uh, it's a great question. And it's one that's often, especially in this, in um, today, misunderstood. And, and I'm glad I have a chance to, to clarify some of this. We are not descendants of primates that we see today at all. We are primates, but what we, uh, instead of being a, a, a descendant of, say, a chimpanzee or a, a, another, another primate, we share common ancestors. So if, if you can picture, uh, you know, the family tree that you would typically have with your relatives and your cousins and all that, if you can take that and, and extrapolate that back and have that instead of being individual people be species where uh, and, and have these be lines that come together like branches on a tree, when these lines come together, that point would be a common ancestor. So chimpanzees and, and, and modern day homo sapiens, for example, share something like 99.8% of our DNA. I mean, think about that. We are, we share almost all of our DNA with, with a chimpanzee. Um, we have definitely a common ancestor and that common ancestor uh, dates back to somewhere between five and seven million years ago. And we know this through um, looking at uh, mutations in mitochondrial DNA and we've been able to trace this back. So it is at that time period that uh, actually, let me step back a little bit further. Our, the, the original mammals that appeared on this planet uh, appeared during the time of the dinosaurs. And for evolutionary adaptation reasons, um, our earliest mammal ancestor stayed small and we think was nocturnal. And that was purely for survival reasons, because you're sitting here as a potential food source for these massive beasts that are roaming the earth and uh, living it, uh, coming out at night and staying small helped you stay alive. And then uh, 65 million years ago, when we had the great uh, um, uh, extinction that killed off all the dinosaurs, it left an opening, created an opening for uh, for our mam mammals to just explode in in number and size and diversity and populated the earth and eventually gave rise to primates. And during what we called the Miocene epoch, uh, which lasted for millions of years, up in, from about 25 million years ago to 5 million years ago, the earth, much of the earth was dominated by fertile forests. And, and real quick, let me just make a quick aside. I'm giving a million, you know, millions and millions of year history of the earth and life and, and, and species. And in order to do that, I'm, I'm making a lot of generalizations. So one of the things that I'm overlooking is a lot of diversity in both the environment and also in, in animals and, and species. So please understand that. It's not as simple as I'm saying, but this at least can give some framework. So from 25 million years ago to 5 million years ago, the earth was dominated, we think, by fertile forests. And it was the perfect environment for our primate ancestors to flourish. So it was during that time period that we had the greatest number and diversity of primates that ever were on the face of this earth. And at the end of that time period, about 5 million years ago or so, the environment shifted into, um, into what we call the Pliocene, 
and uh, the Pliocene, especially in parts of Africa where our ancestors uh, first appeared, really, uh, you know, I, I like to say to my students, think Lion King. I mean, it was like it turned from this fertile forest into African savanna grassland, right? So if you want an image in your head, that's what you see. And it, it was at that same time period that um, some of our ancestors began to branch off from others, right? This is where we share this common ancestor with chimpanzees. So one line went through a bunch of different changes and eventually became modern day chimpanzees. And another line went through a ton of changes and eventually gave rise to modern day homo sapiens. And it was at this time period around five to seven million years ago with this drastic change in the environment that our ancestors stood up for the first time, stood, not, stood upright and were completely bipedal. So they, they felt we were more comfortable roaming the earth on two legs than we were using any other form of locomotion. And that is the beginning of um, a, a lot of our ancestral species, including things like our australopithecines. How far would you like me to go? No, that, that's good context. So then okay. um, I know people here are things like Neanderthals, um, Homo erectus, Homo habilis. Could you just briefly help kind of give a evolutionary timeline of when these uh, species were existing and were they coexisting uh, and right. where what are our what's our descendant tree look like from that five million years ago to where we are I, I know I know you could spend hours on this and I'm, I'm not expecting all the detail just a, a quick kind of glance as you kind of walk through that tree Okay, so let me uh, say something about the species first, and then maybe we can jump back and, and look at the role the technology played because they're intricately linked. So, and starting at that five to seven million year break is is, is a perfect time to do this. So, at that time period, um, again, there's there's a branch from our common ancestor with chimpanzees, and a lot of it was almost like there were a lot of experiments going on. Uh, a lot of different species were appearing, living um, sometimes hundreds of thousands of years, sometimes millions of years, and then going extinct and giving rise to other things. And there's all this branching um, going on. So you have a uh, numerous different species under uh, a, a genus that we call Australopithecine, which means uh, Southern ape, so South African ape really, but even though they appeared in many different places in Africa. And then eventually, at two and a half million years ago, the first member of our genus, genus Homo, right? We're Homo sapiens. So the, the first member of our genus appears and we call uh, that species Homo habilis. And we called that species Homo habilis because uh, at the time we thought they were the first tool making species. You know, handyman really is what habilis means. So, but even though we found out now later that, that we, it predates that by about a million years. So, at two and a half million years ago, Homo habilis appears. And if you can think about, you know, just to give you a visualization, what our ancestors looked like at the time, Australopithecines and even uh, Homo habilis were not very tall. They, they were more comfortable on two legs than they were on, on four. They spent their time walking around, but they stood upright, you know, full-grown adults, maybe three and a half feet tall. Certainly, again, this is a generalization with brains about the size of a closed fist, right? That's about the size of their brains. Um, they had opposing thumbs. They um, were starting to show changes away from living in trees, um, and some of those anatomical changes are things like not only standing upright uh, better, but um, finger bones were less curved. Curved. If you can imagine um, uh, a hand that's adapted to swinging through branches. I know it sounds very cliche, but hands that are adapted to swinging through branches have 
finger bones that are not as straight as ours are today. They're a little bit curved. They can grab grasp a branch better. So that, that's one thing. Uh, another thing is that uh, arm length compared to leg length changes. So uh, a quadruped or even a tree-dwelling species usually has an arm that's very similar in length to their legs. But as we became more comfortable on two legs and, and locomoted more that way, our arm length shrunk in relation to our legs. And this is what you see at this time period. Small brains, small bodies, um, uh, adaptations away from living in the trees. The biggest significant change in our evolutionary past happens about a half a million years later at two million years when our ancestor Homo erectus first appears. Homo erectus was almost a huge jump in brain size, huge jump in body size. Their bodies were almost as large as modern day Homo sapiens. Um, their brains were a lot bigger, a lot bigger than than Homo Homo habilis or any of the other species that were around at the time. Um, again, this is a very simplified view. Uh, later on, that's that's two million years ago. Tons of changes through time. Um, Homo erectus is the first of our ancestors to leave Africa and populate parts of Asia and um, in Europe. And then over time, and again, a lot of other species we can talk about. These are the main ones, though. And then eventually Homo sapiens appear. We we now think at 300,000 years ago. And there's, again, a, a, a huge jump in brain size to, to, um, uh, to, to modern – well, a jump in brain size in modern-day Homo sapiens. Now, with that said, let me, let me qualify some of those statements. One is I, I – I, laid this out the way it's typically laid out in sort of this linear timeline. And there's a couple dangers in doing that. One is to make you think uh, or make somebody think that you went from one species, became another species, became another species, became another species. And that's not the way that it works. It's it's incredible branching um, species develop, species die out, branching species. So we didn't – Homo erectus – didn't turn into Homo sapiens. Homo erectus speciated into in, in different things. One of those species speciated in different things, and eventually Homo sapiens appeared. You know, that's the kind of way it happens. The other real danger is that uh, when it's laid out in a timeline like that, and we end with Homo sapiens at the end of that story, and we think of ourselves as this, you know, incredible species at the top of the food chain with these incredibly large brains, and we're dominating the earth. We, we have this idea that that entire process was teleological or directed. In other words, that there's this, this greater power directing these earlier forms of us. And of course, it was happening this way. It was always supposed to happen this way. And if you did it again, it would always result in us at the top of the – and that, that's not the case at all. 99% of the species that ever walked the face of this earth are now extinct. And we will be too one day. Hopefully, we've left something behind that speciates into something else, but we will be extinct one day as well. We are, at any given moment, a species is adapting to the environment within which it finds itself. Um, if you stuck Homo sapiens, modern-day Homo sapiens, back in, in the Pliocene, we'd probably become extinct. In the Miocene, we'd probably become extinct. We are only adapted now to this individual environment, and if that environment changes, we either have to adapt or we will become extinct as well. And the other thing, and you mentioned this earlier, is that what's really unique about Homo sapiens now is it is the first time in that entire timeline that we're the only upright walking, intelligent, culture having species on the planet. It's just us now. Before, like when, when the Australopithecines were, were, were roaming the uh, roaming Africa, 
there were several species all at the same time, co uh, seeing one another, you know, living at the same time on, on the landscape. And when Homo habilis appears, there were still some also epithecines left behind. When Homo erectus appears, there were still some Homo habilis around and, and still some australopithecines around. When Homo sapiens appear, you still had Homo erectus. You probably, you very well maybe had a few Homo habilis hanging around in different spots. You had some different species like Neanderthals. You had Homo heidelbergensis. You had the Denisovians. We had a lot of other um, Homo floresiensis on the island of Flores. You had a lot of different species populating the earth coexisting, sometimes mating with one another, which we know happened between Neanderthals and Homo sapiens. And that is a really interesting way to think about the past and also to view our present. For the past, well, 25,000 years or so, it is the only time in millions of years, the only time ever that there's only been one um, hominid species on the planet by and, themselves. And wh why do you think that is? Why are we the only member of the genus Homo left? I, I, that is a question I do not have an answer to, but I'll throw a few, a few thoughts out. Um, one is in order to, to maintain separate species, there has to be a barrier. That barrier can be a physical barrier like mountains or glaciers or oceans. The barrier can be cultural, like, um, it, whatever barrier has to be there to, to make sure that, um, two members of different areas are not mating with one another. And this, this is the way that I like to, to, to say to the students. So if, if you think about um, one population, what gene pool of one population, um, you know, think about like a cloud over the top of that. And that cloud is comprised of all the different um, genetic material in that population. And that's a gene pool. Anybody in that gene pool can mate with one another and exchange and maintain those genes. And, and the numbers of those genes and the percentages uh, will fluctuate over time. But that's the gene pool. And then in another area, you have another population with that same sort of cloud above them with a different set of, of genetic material. And as long as they're um, uh, anatomically, the parts can fit together, right, to, to, to mate. So you can't obviously have a, a mouse and a whale mate because the parts don't fit, right? But the, the other um, – and you ha have, um, uh, you know, genetically – things line up so that they could also mate and produce something viable. You know, you have the opportunity if they're in the same place for genetic material to get uh, exchanged between these. If there is a physical barrier like a mountain or a glacier or an ocean keeping these populations separate, even if they were part of the same species, they eventually go through enough changes if they're uh, separated for long enough that they'll speciate and become something, a different species uh, from one another. If Every now and then, one member of the one species goes to the other. It's enough to maintain that species. And I mean, it could even be, you know, maybe a thousand years or thousands of years. But every now and then, if there's an exchange of genetic material, it's enough to keep uh, the populations members of the same species. You can imagine that in the past, from everything to um, uh, physical barriers, whether it's, again, a desert or a mountain or whatever, uh, to social barriers, uh, not being able to, to communicate with one another or different religions, whatever, that if, if two members of the different species or different populations don't see each other physically or even culturally as potential mates and they don't mate, the speciation happens. As we get better at – this is my mind is what, to answer your question. As we do a better job of roaming around the earth 
communicating with one another, figuring things out. Um, we ha were able to genetically merge a lot of this into one single species. So that's part of it. And that and and the the exchange of genetic material does not have to be uh, for this system to work does not have to be a pleasant one, right? It, it doesn't have to be built on on love and and uh, consensual sex. It could be warfare and rape, right? It, so you're still exchanging genetic material. So as we move around the earth and are exchanging genetic material, we have a much better, you know, whether it's because uh, we can store food and travel longer, whether it's because we have watercraft now and can move around the earth easily, um, if we can keep a, a uh, one population, you know, one species that, that, that's a piece of it. Um, the, the, the other potentials are that homo sapiens maybe just figured out, um, how to do things a little bit better, extract resources in their environment in a way that their bodies could, uh, extract more from it better than, uh, than other, than other species did, or a combination of all these things. There's, there's mm -hmm. arguments about, uh, disease. There's arguments about all sorts of things that, that could have played a role in this. But I, I believe that, our ability as a species to stay in contact, physical contact with one another, really played a large role in in creating the situation where there's just one species now. Okay, now I, I know that's a complex answer, and thank you for for giving me uh, one which uh, definitely does make some sense. So um, let's let's kind of double down on 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 us then as humans today. Okay. So um, I've heard you speak at length about tools, fire, our social uh, skills a huge brain development. And I know that they are, I guess, what makes us so special today and has given us the, the kind of the edge on, on, on this planet earth. Um, why are, why are they, why are they in your mind, the most important factors, tools, fire and social? And then maybe if you can dovetail into, did they have an impact on our brain development? Cause you talk about us having, you know, significant, or, uh, you have spoken previously about our brains having significantly greater capacity in volume mm -hmm. uh, than uh, our primates or, or at any other point in history. We are, you know, we, we have huge brains. How did that come to be? And was that connected to fire, tools, social? I'd love for you to try and kind of weave this together in whichever narrative you see best. Sure. Okay. So let's start out at, at three and a half million years ago. Uh, and, and I want to sort of paint a picture. Remember, we're talking now at this time period about Australopithecines, a little less than three and a half feet tall, small brains, the caloric requirements were not that high. Um, and the diets consisted of limited amounts of seasonal, hyper seasonal fruits, limited amounts of, 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 of vegetables, uh, potentially some what we call underground storage organs, so roots, corms, and tubers, but very limited because most of them are toxic at some level, and some insects, potentially the ability to grab some small rodents or whatever else. But this is this is what their diet consisted of um, with no tools at all. It's all they could do with just their anatomical features to get these resources and extract nutrition from them. And then at one moment, three and a half million years ago, um, you, you know, Imagine you're out there with these small bodies, these small brains, and you see a a animal that had been killed out on the savanna, killed by a predator, like a, a lion, you know, an ancestor to a lion or something like this. And what happens, we think happened, we're sure happened in the past, we know what happens now. When a predator kills and makes a kill 
what it does is it kills the animal and then it gorges itself on the most nutrient dense part of that animal. So all of a sudden it goes in, rips it apart, gets to the inside and eats the organs and the blood and the fat and it gorges itself and then goes off and sleeps and, and digests that food. And then later on, we'll sometimes come back and start eating the rest of the animal, the meat and, and, and whatnot. Sometimes it'll even leave it and never come back. But that window of time after it's killed it and gorged itself and has gone off to sleep or gone off and done something else is a perfect window of time to run in there and access this food that had been killed for you by something else, right? The problem is imagine – trying to run out on the savannah, incredibly scared of whatever made that kill coming back and trying to rip flesh off of a large animal with your nails mm -hmm. and your teeth. It doesn't, you, you can't do it. You might be able to get a few bites, but um, even if that is the case, you've only gained a little bit of nourishment for yourself and it ha haven't helped anybody back at camp. So at three and a half million years ago, just west of Lake Turkana in Kenya, at a, a, a site that we now call Lamekwe, we see the first stone tool. And this stone tool uh, was nothing more than uh, two rocks of the right material that and we think an australopithecine struck together and in less than a second created a sharp edge, a razor sharp edge. And it may not seem like much. I mean, and if you're thinking about, okay, they're busting rocks together and, and you know, making gravel. No, think about the power of what happened in that very instant. You took two rocks, struck them together, and made a razor-sharp edge, an edge that was sharper and more durable than anything you have on your body. And in an instant, you transformed your relationship with your environment. You were no longer restricted to using your nails and your teeth and your muscles to get food or process food. You can now overcome those physical limitations and for the first time ever, butcher that animal on the savanna hack off hunks of meat and bust open bones from marrow and bring that stuff back to wherever the rest of your group was and feed people that weren't out there with you, like the elderly or the sick or your young. And that is the first time we see the production of tools and we start to see transformations in diet and then eventually transformations in our bodies. So that was a three and a half million years ago. And as a result of that, we do see uh, some body growth we do see some brain growth and eventually we give rise – it gives rise to Homo habilis two and a half million years ago. Meat is – and I like to think in nutrient, in nutrient density terms. Meat is much more nutrient dense than, uh, than plants, right? Um, it's safer to consume than plants because – and we can talk more about this later on because – but plants, especially wild plants, have have toxins in them that allow them to survive and in, 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 in the environment. But animals typically don't, don't have that. But we don't see this incredible jump in body and brain size that you would expect with this introduction of this incredibly nutritious and um, nutrient-dense meat. And we don't see that jump until two million years ago when Homo erectus appears. And this is why, why I and many other people believe that to be the case. And it, it really, I think, should uh, – how do I say it? it? It really should help guide our conversation on using animals as food in, in the modern world as well. We get so focused on meat that we miss the larger picture. And missing the larger picture has incredible ramifications for both nutrition but also for ethics and sustainability and even for economics. And, and, and we'll go into that in just a few minutes. But let me paint this picture of two million years ago. What changes at two million years ago and what Homo erectus is able to do 
um, are, are, are two major things. One is they begin to hunt. So instead of relying on the predators to kill the animals for you, Homo erectus can kill the animals themselves. And what this does is unlock and make available the most incredibly nutrient-dense parts of the animal. When we kill an animal, we have what we call first access to that animal, right? So we kill an animal, we get the organs, we get the blood, we get the fat, we get all the important parts of it, and then we can go ahead and start consuming the meat. So number one, we have access now because we're hunting to the absolute most nourishing food and bioavailable food on the planet, the inside of the animal. Secondly, um, we, we, we uh, think Homo erectus uh, was able to control fire and can cook. And uh, people like Richard Rangham from Harvard are great examples of people who've done a lot of work to, to, to look at the role that fire played in making food not only safer, but unlocking the nutrients that are in that food to make them available for incredibly weak digestive tracts. And that's because of those two things, I'm convinced that's why we see the incredible body and brain size jump in Homo erectus. And I think our brains, they, they triple in volume, right? From like 400 to 1200 or 1600 CC in, during this period that you're talking about. Is that right? And, and not only do our brains grow at such an incredible rate when we go from species to species, what's also really important, and, and, and I wish we, I, I could show you a slide or a visual of this, but when if you were to graph the brains of uh, the, the cubic centimeter size of species brains from when they first appear and then track that while they're, you know, continuing to live on, on this planet, um, they rise, right? So it's not that Homo habilis had a certain brain size. It's Homo habilis when it first appears two and a half million years ago has a certain brain size. And as time goes on, their brains are increasing in size. Same thing with, um, with Homo erectus, same thing with many of our ancestors. So not only do they appear and are doing something different that allows them to support this incredible brain growth, jump in brain size, but their brains are, they're doing what they're doing so well and continue to do it that the brain size is actually growing through time. That's not the case with Homo sapiens. It's not the case with Neanderthals, with the rest of the species that is, that is the case. Mm. Okay. So I've heard, um, is it um, Miki Bendor and uh, mm -hmm. others uh, purport that it was the hunting of fat that gave rise to the growth of our brains and the development of our bodies as uh, extreme as we have seen. Um, is Do you agree with that? Do you agree with, uh, well, you, you've spoken about the organ meats and how that they are the most nutritious part of the animal and that absolutely had supported um, our evolutionary development. Is, is, is fat valuable? And I know this is just a nutritional 101 question, but many people still demonize fat for right. making us fat. So why was fat important to our evolution? So, yeah, so or let me let me qualify what I said earlier. I, I hope I had said organ meat and fat, but what you I did, mean to did. say is okay, or <laughs> yes, right, good. So, organ meat and fat are are the things in you know, uh, Mickey Bendor would, would would agree especially with fat that yeah, I think the title of, of one of the, his recent articles is is fat made us human, right? So, um I and I would agree with that that and there's several reasons why. Number 1, um I forget who it was. I heard, I heard a quote the other day that said, um, you know, not only are, are we worried about fat, but we're very, we, we still demonize cholesterol. Right. And, um, I think the quote was something like when you bite into an animal and every bite that you 
that you take has a certain amount of cholesterol in it, there's a reason why. Right? And the reason why is because cholesterol and fat in general play very important roles in our healthy bodies. And what they were trying to say, and I forget who it was that said this, what they were, what they meant was there was so much cholesterol in an animal and we are an animal in all parts of that animal that it, it just goes to show you that you need to have it to live mm -hmm. properly. Now, what the reason that organ meats and fat are so important beyond just what, uh, especially what fat has in it, um, in, in terms of cholesterol, how it uh, coats um, our, our neural pathways, and how it's an important component of, of all these uh, aspects of our anatomy. What's really significant about, in my mind, significant about organ meats and fat and blood, is that once we can access them. We don't need to do anything else to reap the nutritional benefits of it. So um, I know this is something I think that you wanted to talk about anyhow, but I think this is a very good time to talk about it. One of the things that I, I like to say is that um, animals can hurt us or kill us when they're alive and plants can hurt us or kill us when they're dead. And what I, I mean that. by that, That's and it speaks, spe <laughs> speaks specifically to, to, to the role of technology. We, there, there is, and I, and I just want to make sure I say something about this now because um, I know some people out there who have a little bit of an anthropological background are probably screaming right now saying that I should have mentioned this. There is a hypothesis called the carrier hypothesis that suggests that humans can outrun any animal on the planet and uh, run them to death. And it's a very long story how this can happen. And there are examples of this happening and, and it's true. Uh, however, um, we're usually talking marathon distances to run these animals down to exhaustion um, and then to dispatch them, you still need some sort of a technology. And then when you're done, you're like 26 miles away from home and you got to carry this animal back and the nutritional gains of doing this are not necessarily worth the effort all the time. So there, there is a way that humans can hunt without tools and there are examples of it happening, but I don't think it made played a very important nutritional role in our past. So let's put that aside for just a minute. If we forget about that, let's look at the role of technology in our diet. Humans, other than that example, cannot really hunt without tools. So we create technologies to overcome animals' physical defenses, horns, antlers, claws, muscles, teeth, whatever, and we kill an animal. But the danger part of accessing that food resource is in the hunting. Once that animal is dead, we don't have to do much to that animal to reap all the nutritional benefits that it has, especially with regards to the blood, the fat, and the organs. So you could dive in and eat all of those things raw and get almost the same amount of nutrition in the right places in our body than if we cooked it or fermented it or did all sorts of other things to it. Meat is a little different. Um, again, Richard Rangham has done a lot of important work here, and he suggests that, and I, and I think it's absolutely true, that a little cooking with meat helps significantly in uh, making the nutrients in the meat available to the human body. Any, anything we can do to process the meat. So cutting it up, you know, cutting it up, grinding it, slicing it, chopping it, whatever. And then a little bit of cooking helps significantly uh, do that. So that that's great. But the organs, the fat and the blood are nutritionally available to even our incredibly weak digestive tract after we've used the technology to overcome the animal's physical defenses and and kill it. So it's an incredibly safe, nutrient-dense, and bioavailable food for our bodies. 
plants, on the other hand, don't move, right? So they they create all sorts of chemical defenses that allow these plants to survive in the environment on their own. And these are things we call weeds, right? We do everything that we can to get rid of these weeds in our yards and in the cracks of the sidewalks and all this, but they continue to come back. And they continue to come back because they are creating chemicals, toxins that allow them to fight the outside world and survive and thrive just like every other species on the planet wants to do. The good news about some of the chemicals that they produce is that a lot of these chemicals are incredible uh, for flavor and taste. Some of them are incredible for medicinal qualities. Some of them are incredible for nutritional qualities. But the hazard is almost all of them are toxic in some way. This is not to suggest that we shouldn't eat plants. We should, in my mind, we should definitely be eating plants, but we shouldn't do so blindly. We blindly eat plants today. We, we, we put plants in a category right now of this is a health food. This is incredibly safe. We should eat massive amounts of plants and not think twice about it. And that is a very unhealthy and actually dangerous thing to do. And we can talk more about it in a few minutes, but let me just back up for one second. These wild plants and domesticated plants as well, but these wild plants spend a lot of effort to create these illegal chemicals or these toxins that allow them to survive in, 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 in the world. Some of these toxins act as insecticides, some are fer- fungicides, some are herbicides, and these plants thrive. And what we've done through domestication is we've dumbed these plants down. We've bred a lot of these uh, natural defenses out of these plants and created very unsafe conditions in a number of different ways for a number of different reasons. One is we then plant them and leave them defenseless out in a field. And because they're defenseless, they're susceptible to all sorts of fungus and and predation and all these other sorts of things, insect uh, from insects and whatever. So we then now, since they're defenseless, we have to hit them with all sorts of of chemicals and 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 modern manufactured things to allow them to survive. The other uh, uh, problem is that we've bred out a lot of the medicinal and nutritional qualities of these plants as a result. But just as importantly, and something that many people are not talking about today, is that even though we've bred a lot of these, or lowered the levels of them in these plants, they're still there. So toxins like lectins and and, uh, oxalates and glycoalkaloids and, and the list can go on and on, are still present in these plants. But they're at a level that they're not in our conscious. That, you know, as a forager, foraging for wild plants, you're thinking about the toxins plants might have. As uh, somebody living millions of years ago, you're thinking about the toxins these things might have, and you're developing technologies to reduce or eliminate these these toxins. But I think most people that are listening to this would agree that all of us walking into a gro- at a grocery store, walking through the produce section, uh, you, you would stand there and look around and say, okay, let's have at it. All these, all these, all these, none of these vegetables are going to hurt me. I, I can eat massive quantities of them and the more the better and I'll make myself even healthier. And while there are nutritional aspects of that that may or may not be true, there are toxic uh, issues surrounding that that a lot of these toxins can build up in our bodies. We need to be conscious of the toxins in these plants and use a lot of the technologies that we used in the past to detoxify them. And I know that was a little bit of a tangent. I apologize. We can talk more about that in a moment. No, well, let's, original- well, no let's, let's, let's just double click there for a second. So we're there, right? So you, you've speaking about um, plant toxin, toxins. I also think there's, it's not just the understanding of those plant toxins and how to process them out, um, but it's also the seasonality of how we consume plant-based foods today, which is just completely alien 
to how I guess we would have done before, right? So we would have eaten seasonally based on what was available, what was growing, and not everything grows all year round. So I do think not only, you know, there there is this uh, toxin or making plants safe for digestion that I, I think we've kind of lost some of that culturally and through the industrialization of, of eating. But I also feel that we're just eating so much of it that whilst there may be low levels of toxins that, you know, some people listening to this pod- podcast are thinking, hey, there ain't, there ain't toxins in plants. You know, I have these all the time. I'm fine. But are, one, are we fine? Two, what's happening internally? Three, mm-hmm. you are processing those foods. We are, we are doing that today. As you say, we have hybridized them to become less toxic. Um, but we are eating them all the time. And that's just evolutionary, not consistent. Um, but maybe this kind of lend kind of underscores something um, that I've heard you say, and I I know you're alluding to now, which is, we seem to be the only animal that processes our food before ingesting it. So you you spoke about in this idea of scavenging and hunting, and how we, you know, once we had the opportunity to get into the get to the access the meat and the organs, we'd go about go about eating that. And there wasn't much in the way of processing needed, you could just get straight at it. But in regards to the majority of the other foods that we have, and I think the majority of foods that Western cultures eat today, plant-based derivatives of some sort, um, we process almost all of those. Yet, if you Mm. look across the animal kingdom, you don't, as far as I understand, you don't see other animals processing their food before consumption. And that, I think, is an important part of our evolution and what we can have and what we eat today and how we interact with our foods. Is that a fair statement? Absolutely. And in fact, I think it's probably the most important statement that that we could we could make today. Uh, There are let me qualify this very quickly. There are some limited examples of some animals doing a minimal amount of processing. So, for example, chimpanzees will crush will take two rocks and bust open a nut um, to get to the nut meat on the inside. But um, for the most part, we are a species that relies on processing our food to nourish our bodies in a way that we, we have to in order to survive and certainly to subsist. So um, a couple things that I think, I, I, let me just make a few statements that I, I wanna make sure I, I get in that are, um, I think are the biggest takeaways from this conversation. One is what we do as humans is we process, or at least what we used to do as humans and what we need to get back to, is that we process food to achieve three goals. To make our food safe, to make it nutrient dense, and to make it bioavailable. And I, I, this is probably the most important, this is, this is the crux of, every, of all the work that I do. And it took me a long time to come up with, those, with, with, with that statement. And I, and I need to repeat it because it really is the basis for what I think uh, the, the focus of our dietary past has been for three and a half million years and what we need to, uh, the focus we need to regain in order to make the, um, the dietary changes that we need to make. We need to focus on the technologies that make food safe, nutrient dense and bioavailable. Um, and I'll, I'll give you, well, I can give you a ton of examples for it. And let me, let me just make one other very quick statement because we're going to talk about toxins and plants and the like. Anyhow, the, uh, a bit of a, if I could give a bit of advice, the best piece of advice that I could give, I believe, is to question everything. You, everybody that's listening to this has been told probably throughout their entire life, but at least some point in their life, what they should be eating. 
by a doctor, by a dietitian, by a parent, by a sibling, by a friend, by the internet, by whatever. And uh, the best thing that you can do if you want to truly regain your health and your connection with your health and your diet and your food and your environment is to question every single bit of that advice. Some of it might have been great, but still question it. There is no food that we should put on a pedestal and say that is uh, – the hell, you know, that is absolutely healthy and safe for me to eat and bioavailable without questioning it. Um, and, and some of these examples are even things like spinach and Swiss chard and kale, which are, you know, there's a lot of work being done now on the oxalate uh, toxicity levels in these plants and the problems that they can cause. So question them. Remember, we are the only species on the planet that hires nutritionists to tell us how to eat. Mm-hmm. And we're the sickest species on the planet because of our diet. Something is wrong. And this isn't to say that nutritionists, there's anything inherently wrong with nutritionists and the advice that they give. What I, I the, the, the meaning behind that's why I make that statement is because we inherently, we have the ability, all of us have the ability, if we are in tune, if we're connected with our food, if we're connected with our environment, that we have the ability to eat healthy without anybody telling us how to do it, right? We can definitely do that. The only species on this planet that are as sick as us because of the food that they eat are our pets, right? And our livestock. And that's because we're monkeying around in, in, in that world as well. And we're feeding our pets people food. And now pets are coming up with all the modern Western diseases from diabetes to cancer, right? So um, you have, everybody listening to this has the tools if you can connect with your food to make your decisions about how to feed yourself and your family. You just have to get to that point. So let's, let's back up for just a second with the, with the nutrient availability piece of this and the safety piece. Food, there, we should approach all food from the perspective that if you're looking at a resource in front of you, you should find out and discover and develop ways of taking that resource and making sure that you're doing everything to it to make it as safe, nutrient-dense, and bioavailable as possible. Just because you put it into your mouth, first of all, just because you get it from a grocery store doesn't mean it's safe. Just because you put it into your mouth and chew it and swallow it doesn't mean you're getting all the nutrition from that food that it has. Uh, that, 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 that it has. And you know, one example that I always use is corn. Right? I, I know – we eat a lot more corn or maize here in the, in the U.S. than you do there. But most people listening to this have probably eaten corn on the cob some sometime. And if they have, almost everybody, if they've looked, has seen corn in the toilet, whole kernels of corn mm-hmm. the next day. And we laugh about it and we joke about it or we just don't talk about it. But we need to talk about it. We derive pleasure from eating that food. But that kernel of corn that you see gave us absolutely no nutrition whatsoever. In fact, some people would argue that it actually robbed our body of a little bit of nutrition as it went through our digestive tract. Maize is one of the most difficult grains in the world for our body to derive all the nutrition that it has in it um, and, and use it and uh, use it in our bodies. Even if you grind it or boil it or slice it or dice it, whatever you do to it, it doesn't matter, except for there's one technology. There is one technology called nishtamalization that we know uh, was developed at least 4,000 years ago. I think it was closer to 15,000 years ago. But it is the only technology that we know of that can make corn completely bioavailable to the human body. I I bring this up as – because it's a much longer story we can dive into later if you like. But – I bring this up because think about the ramifications of, of, of what I just said. 
corn right now, the past two years, I understand has been the most widely grown grain in the world. A lot of that is going to animals. A lot of it's going to bio or biofuel, but a massive amount of it is going into humans as food. Only a very fraction of that uh, that's going into humans have been processed the right way to unlock all the nutrients. And corn is a, 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 a dominant thing, maize, corn in, in um, uh, impoverished or, or hungry populations. So think about overnight. That one method of that nishtamalization, that, that several thousand year old processing method, what that can do to transform this without changing, you know, for, forget any discussion about uh, genetically engineered, new ways of farming, new ways of heart, forget all that. If all we did was change the way that we process that food and unlock all the nutrients that are in it to humans, what can that literally do overnight in those populations? And that, and again, it's a much larger story, but we can have that same conversation about dairy. We can have that same conversation about animals of which in the modern Western world, we only eat about 50% by weight of, and the most nutrient dense part of it is the part that gets tossed. Now think about all of those ramifications if we just transform our approach to the food and adopt a method that is more similar to the past. So when we talk about processing, Bill, we're, we're talking about things such as using fire or heat to, to mm -hmm. cook right in what we what we traditionally term as cooking today uh it's fermentation uh sprouting i guess storage um yeah help help us understand when you say processing it sounds very technology centric but you know we are constantly processing our food every day to eat now there is you know the raw vegan movement which i I think is ridiculous. And, you know, again, relating us back to primates saying, oh, you know, they don't cook their food, they're fine. Why should I cook my food? Uh, I'm sure there's some arguments to say that's a silly idea. But if you think about modern, modern food today, whether you're buying it from a supermarket in a packet, or you're cooking your food at home, you are processing the majority of your food. Is that a fair statement? You are processing or it's already been processed or both. A absolutely. So think about this. It <sighs> Our nutritional requirements now are incredibly different than they were in the past. Not only have our bodies grown exponentially, but our brains have grown exponentially. And uh, that requires massive amounts of high quality nutrition to support. Um, let, let's, let, let me, this is, this is completely relevant. G give me just one second to do a quick aside, but it, it can help answer this and, and, and I promise I'll bring it back around. If you th there's been a lot of discussions about you know what are what are the first domesticated species right we we know that dogs were domesticated somewhere we think around 35,000 years ago or so we know that different plants were domesticated around 15,000 years ago uh, livestock and other sorts of thing beginning around eight to nine to ten thousand years ago and and you know th that process continues and continues so and there's a lot a lot of people ask well, what was the first domesticated species well if you're if you're definition of domestication, which mine is, is that you take a species and put it in a cultural environment in which it's cared for intended. Uh, you know, for example, whether we fenced in animals and we feed the animals or we take plants and water them or, or, or fertilize the ground or fence them in or whatever. And we take care of them in a, in a, in a human cultural environment to the point where they genetically change, right? Um, all in many cases, they genetically change to the point where they can no longer survive in the wild outside of that cultural environment. If that is your definition, then the first, I believe the first domesticated species is us. 
and we began that process of domestication three and a half million years ago. We, because what we did when we created that first stone tool and then enhanced that technology over time and we created fire and we learned and we created technologies that allowed us to hunt and to ferment, we, what we did was we created the technologies that allowed us to extract incredibly, you know, resources from our environment that we couldn't do on our own and then use those technologies to make the food as nutrient-dense and bioavailable and as safe as possible. And our bodies, in res- you know, it supported these growing bodies and brains. If you rip those technologies away now, we cannot support these bodies and these brains. We cannot do it. We've built them on the back, on diets that were built on the back of these technologies. Yeah, I, was, I, so, was, I was just going to say that. I was like, you know, c- considering how dominant we are as a species, we have so many dependencies that, you rip those apart, we wouldn't exist today. And that's that's quite profound to think about. Whereas you look at other, you know, animals in the animal kingdom and they, they they don't have technology both supporting their growth and proliferation, but also not hindering them if they were to disappear. So we've got that huge dependency on technology, right? Absolutely. And that is exactly the crux of this entire argument that We've we've created these bodies on the backs of diets that were built on the packs of these technologies. And, you know, our brain is two percent of our body, but requires 20 percent of our nutritional intake to fuel. I mean, they're massively expensive and it's not only calories. We need to talk about the or you need to consider at least the the micro and macronutrients that go into supporting not only just our bodies, but also our brains. And that's one of the key reasons that fat and cholesterol become incredibly important, especially in young children as their bodies and their brains are are, are really developing. So uh, when you think about the role of food processing, um, when I say food processing, I mean food processing that does the three things that I, I mentioned earlier, make food safe, nutrient dense and bioavailable. There's obviously modern food processing, which does the exact opposite, mm. which processes food for other purposes, for uh, allowing it to ship or store for a long time or look a certain way in a package or have long shelf life or what have you. And quite often that food processing is at the expense of the nutrients. It, 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 and that is a really... It, it is a huge distinction. So, and and I wish we had a different word. I, I wish I could come up with a different word than food processing because I don't want that those those lines blurred because it's such an important distinction. But one of the things that I that I also like to say is, you know, we um, we it, it should be incredibly difficult eating a a real diet to become obese. It should be, but we figured out how to do that. We the modern food industry has figured out ways of providing an abundance of food we shouldn't be eating and chemically changing it so it, it, it hits all of our evolutionary tastes and senses and, and, and desires and all this to uh, and make and we have subsidies that make that terrible food cheap and 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 whatnot and and we then marketing and advertising all of a sudden we, we've done a great job of creating obesity it should be impossible we've created it but what should be more impossible and what should um, be an absolutely ridiculous thing to even consider could happen, but we've created it, is obesity and malnutrition in the same individual. Mm-hmm. We have created. Oh, sorry, go ahead. No, no I just said definitely. I, I, I've I've said the same thing. Um, I'm sure I've nicked it from someone else, but how can we both be fat and malnourished at the same time? It's a bit of a paradox. And and the reason is because the food processing processes, creates food that is so nutrient free that you can eat massive amounts of it, become obese and still not in all of the food that you're eating, find the, all the different nutrients you need to, um, support a healthy human body. And I think a lot of it is, 
a lot of it also has to do with our, our paradigm, our idea, our approach to eating on an individual basis when we try to eat healthy. So in the past, I'm convinced people wanted, you know, created these technologies and approaches to food to get the most amount with the least amount of work, right? You get the most amount of nutrition in a way that our body can do the best job, uh, make the most use of with the least amount of physical effort. And if that's even partially true, you know, counter that with the way that we approach food and diet and health today. We go to great lengths to buy food that is nutrient free, right? In fact, the advertising industry helped support this or helped create it. There was a study done six or seven years ago that um, in American grocery stores where they looked at all the packaged food and I forget the exact number, but something like 70 or 80% of the advertising and marketing of the uh, uh, packaged food boasted about, advertised what the food didn't have in it. You know, gluten-free, fat-free, low-calorie, whatever. And again, a lot of those things are things we probably shouldn't have in our bodies anyhow. But it really helps define how we think about food. When we think about how we're going to eat, it's, okay, I don't want this, I don't want this, I don't want this. In fact, modern Americans want to eat all day long and not get fat. So we seek out nutrient-free food. If we're trying to get healthy, what do we do? Many, what do many people do? They eat a salad with no salad dressing. Right. And that is vegetables, again, have wonderful things in them. But a salad with no salad dressing is pretty much dominated by air and water. Mm -hmm. I mean, that is a not a nutrient dense bioavailable food. In fact, in many people would argue, depending on what's in that salad, it may not even be a safe food. Uh, but people in the past, when we had healthy bodies, healthier bodies were doing more than surviving. We were subsisting. We were having babies and those babies were having babies. Populations were rising. We're, what were we doing? We were going after the most nutrient dense, bioavailable, safe food in the world, developing technologies that allowed all of those things to be even better. And we were doing great. So when you talk about processing in the you know traditional ancestral sense of the word, um, what are those common practices that we can relate to today? Um, and you don't need to go into the specific, you know, tribal variations, but yeah, just the, the kind of high level themes of food processing that we rely upon. Sure. So, and, and you know, I, uh, we've built up over the past hour or so, you know, all the, the benefits of all this, and I don't mean it to be anticlimactic, but they're actually quite simple. Um, the first one is literally just cutting, slicing, dicing, chopping, and, 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 and uh, process grinding, processing our food in, in that way used to be done with stone. Now it's done. Just think everybody listening to this, if you've eaten breakfast or lunch or dinner today already, what technologies did you use that accomplished everything I just talked about? How many times did you pull out a kitchen knife or a pair of kitchen scissors or used a blender or a food processor mm. in order to process uh, the food in some way before you ate it. And Chicken one of the tomato is processing in, in, in that context. Yeah. Think about what, not only are you doing less work, allowing your, you're making it so your teeth are doing less work, but you're it's, certainly once the food enters your body, it requires a lot less time and energy to fully break down. So chopping a tomato, chopping an apple, all of that, crushing open a, uh, the shell of a nut to get to the nut inside, all of those things are, are some examples of this in a very simple sense. And then there's fire or heat. Um, cooking, uh, I, I feel about 10 or 15 years ago was was demonized a little in the dietary world. You know, we we're talking about the suggestion if, you know, what it can do to extract nutrition from food. And this was, a, I mean, people boiling uh, collard greens or, or spinach to death and 
than eating the leftover mush that's left over. A lot of the nutrition is probably in the water. You know, there were some suggestions of that, but you know, disregard that for a minute. The role of fire in making food safe, nutrient dense, and bioavailable is absolutely incredible. And this is one of the things again, Richard Rangham, who I have tremendous respect for, um, has done a lot of work on. So, especially with regards to meat, meat, red meat is an amazing food for the human body. I'm convinced it is, but it does require processing. It requires technology. The first technology is actually getting at that animal. <clears throat> Excuse me. The next technology is butchering that animal and, and accessing the meat. And then even when you have a huge hunk of red meat, can we, do, can we eat it raw safely if the animal is, is healthy? Absolutely. Can we derive nutrition from it? Absolutely. Can we derive the maximum amount of nutrition from it? No. We need to do something else to it. And if you think about um, uh, if you eat raw meat, raw red meat at a restaurant, how are you usually eating it? As either carpaccio or tartare, which means it was sliced incredibly thin or it was already chopped up for you. That right there, in addition to it being uh, visually appealing and in addition to it being you know, the mouthfeel and all that being wonderful and, and, and adding a value and, and pleasure in eating the food, that unlocked a lot of the nutrients in it. And if you combine that with cooking, again, even a little bit of cooking can unlock a lot of the nutrients in red meat. Uh, so you know, probably the most accessible way to eat red meat, nutrient accessible way, is um, like a medium rare hamburger. You've hit, you've hit all the markers. Uh, fermentation, uh, you mentioned earlier, is absolutely huge. And if you look, and just to sort of um, support the importance of it, if you look at, I don't know of a tra a real traditional um, cuisine in the world that doesn't have fermentation at its core at some level. And when I mean fermentation, I mean everything from fermenting dairy into things like yogurt, kefir, or clabber, or cheese, to fermenting vegetables into sauerkrauts and kimchi and, and pickles, to uh, fermenting uh, meat. There's a ton of different examples of fermenting meat, and, and, and the list can go on and on. And one other thing to keep in mind uh, as well is that most of, of the conversations around fermentation in, in the modern world now have to do with what we call acidic fermentations, where you're using lactobacillus bacteria or other bacterias to um, uh, eat different things depending on what it is in, in the foods and produce things like lactic acids, which drop the pH, make the food safe, inherently safe as a result of that, and then transform it chemically and physically into, into things that are not only more nutrient available and safer to eat, but also um, we, we derive a ton of pleasure from the smells and the textures and the taste from. But there's also a whole series of alkaline ferments where uh, typically surrounding um, uh, animal products and also maize, like I mentioned earlier, the uh, the nishtamalization, which is which is inherently an, an alkaline ferment, where you're doing different things to actually raise the pH. And in both of those cases, um, a pH of seven is obviously neutral. Um, water is right around seven, and then, but it, it, it's a place that can harbor right around that area can harbor uh, bad pathogens. And if you go in either direction from that neutral pH and it becomes more acidic or it becomes more alkaline, you're creating environments that are uh, beneficial to good bacteria and good microorganisms and hostile to bad ones. And both of those situations create and make food very, very safe. Um, curing, aging, um, you know, those are those are the major kinds of, of technologies that I'm talking about. None of them are rocket science, mm -hmm. but are missing in our modern kitchens. And when, when you talk about fermentation, 
I'm the, the, please uh, correct me if this is this not correct, but I believe that you know coffee is it goes through a process of fermentation. So does cacao, and uh, and as you say, dairy. Uh, you know, if you go to cheese and you know all those kind of things and yogurts. So there's a lot of fermentation that happens in our everyday food stuff that we eat today. It's not just the sourdough breads, the kefir. Um, or, you know, the sauerkraut, which is a, what I think people normally attach to the word fermentation. Is, is is that correct? Have I got that right in terms of the process being fairly universal across a lot of the foodstuffs we eat today? Oh, absolutely. In fact, it'd be very hard for you to find a real food that at some level in its preparation hasn't relied on something to do with fermentation. So yes, real Real good coffee that is uh, um, prepared, um, harvested and then prepared in a very traditional way relies upon a level of fermentation. Cacao relies on a level of fermentation. All real cheeses rely on and, – and, and, I, and I qualify that because there's a lot of, of things that we're calling cheese in the modern world that yeah. don't go through a process of you fermentation. Can, you but can process cheese without fermentation, correct, with some you, some chemicals? Uh, you can. In fact, yeah. can we talk about cheese for a second? Yeah, let's do it. I'm, I'm, I'm a big fan of milk and raw milk to that fact. So yeah, let's go there. <laughs> so I, I, this is a great um, this is a great aside or, or a great topic to dive into because it really, I think, shows the power of what you can determine for yourself once you understand, once you connect with your food at a level where you understand how it's re- how it's really made. Um, so there's a big debate about dairy right now for a number of different reasons. And, and the question really is, should should adult humans be consuming dairy? We are the only species that does. And a lot of the arguments against it say thing or suggest or, 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 or you know, stake their you put their stake in the ground on things like, hey, we're the only we're the only species that consume dairy as adults. That's one thing. And, and, and say consume dairy, you're explicitly you're referring to uh, an animal eating the milk of another animal. Sure. Yeah. yeah. An animal eating the milk of another animal. But I don't know, and I could be wrong, but I don't know any examples of adult animals drinking the milk of their own species. But but it, it very well could be the case. I don't I don't know. Um, but yes, drinking the milk in, in this case, let's let's say drinking the milk of another animal and doing so especially when they're adults. Because we all know that all mammals we we're called mammals because of mammary glands and the dependence on on milk from our mothers when we're young. All mammals, this is this is what ties all mammals together. So inherently, at, from that perspective, at least at some moment in our lives, milk is incredibly important to our our survival and subsistence, right? So in this case, it's infants. But let's um let's break down a couple of the arguments against against dairy and then talk about uh, dairy in a different light that is usually not talked about and not usually not discussed in. So one of the issues with dairy and humans is that um, a large number of human adults uh, lose or suppress the production of the enzyme lactase when you know a- as we get older, and that enzyme lactase is the enzyme that breaks down and helps us digest the sugar lactose that is in milk, and those who are lactose intolerant or experience all sorts of issues when they consume um, when they consume certain types of dairy from uh, uh, discomfort and distress to whatever. And often the, the argument stops there. It's okay. We here all of a sudden here's the evidence. We we as humans can't 
you know, we lose the ability to, to digest this sugar that's in milk. So all of a sudden it's not considered a proper food for humans. Well, that's a ridiculous statement. That's almost like the statement that suggests we shouldn't be eating meat because we don't have huge canines like predators on the African savanna do. Um, both of those arguments are absolutely ridiculous because they don't take into account that almost every single food that we as humans consume requires technology at some level to yeah. either access or to process or to do both. So we stopped needing canines three and a half million years ago because we produce in less than a second razor sharp edges that are more efficient than the canines are. And we can say the same thing for milk. So here, here, here's, here's the, uh, the larger conversation about milk. Dairy, we have evidence for um, the um, uh, raising of an uh, dairy producing animals for about 10,000 years. And we have evidence for the production of cheese for about 8,000 years. I think both of those things, as, as we um, learn more, are going to get pushed even further back in time. But let's just say around 10,000 years as, as a number. Um, the groups of people that were consuming large amounts of dairy and brought it into their diets in a way that it became a staple. Some of those groups independently uh, experienced a genetic mutation that allowed uh, most of the adults, if not all the adults in those populations to continue to produce that enzyme lactase far into adulthood. And one of the great examples is Ireland. Ireland actually has the um, uh, largest percentage of lactose tolerance in adults of any population in, in the world. And it just speaks to the long history with, with dairy. But when we talk about dairy, one of the issues is that we only, you know, when I say the word dairy, everybody who's listening to this has a different image in their head what I'm talking about. And most people were probably thinking about pasteurized milk from the grocery store mm -hmm. when I when I say dairy. And if we want to have a conversation about whether we should be drinking pasteurized milk as adult humans from another animal, I, I'm very happy to say we probably shouldn't. But I don't want to sort of throw the baby out with the bathwater here because I do inherently believe dairy is an incredibly nutrient-dense bioavailable food that can be made safer and more nutrient-dense and more bioavailable through technology. And here's this is where it becomes really exciting for me. Um, this is what happens when baby mammals drink milk. When baby mammals drink milk, it goes into their stomachs and uh, immediately get hit by a number of different enzymes. Uh, there's one enzyme called lipase, which breaks down some of the fat. There's an enzyme called um, a lactase, which breaks down the sugar's lactose. And there's another enzyme called chymosin, which coagulates the milk. And the reason that the milk is coagulated is because, especially when you're uh, consuming just liquids, the liquids pass through our digestive tracts much too quickly to fully break down and for the nutrients to fully be absorbed by our digestive tracts. So nature has figured out that if we slow it down by forming it into a semi-semi-solid, we can um, the, the, the dairy will ferment. It will uh, mechanically and chemically break down uh, further and, the and there's a better chance for all the nutrients in it to fully be absorbed by our infant, uh, infant digestive tracts. So that's awesome. So you have this, this raw dairy full of all sorts of, of high quality nutrition, including a ton of probiotics and prebiotics going into our digestive tracts as infants. It's hitting our stomach. The, the right things are getting broken down the right way. It's coagulating. It's getting slowed down. It's fermenting. Then, it, then when it's digested, then when it's broken down, it goes into our small intestines and the, um, the, the nutrients are absorbed. And then, you know, we, we create healthy babies. When we, when, when infants start to eat 
solid food, um, the production of chymosin, that enzyme that coagulated it, begins to slow down and then eventually ceases. And we no longer have that ability to do that. And in many humans, we suppress that ability to break down the lactose uh, in it, which is fine. Now, what do we do? You know, in my mind, how do I decide what is an appropriate food for me and my family? Well, again, I go back to that same thing. You know, what 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 foods uh, have incredible macro and micronutrients in them? Which foods are either safe or can be made safe through technology? And which foods can be made even more nutrient dense or bioavailable through technology? And um, if you think about dairy, it's it's amazing. I mean, this is a food that was literally designed to support new life when at, at one of its most nutrient needy times when it's developing. To me, it's a no brainer. If I can make that food safe, nutrient dense and bioavailable, I'm, I, I'm consuming milk and, or dairy and so is my family. But how do we do that? Well, what do we, what we do, the best way to do it is to replicate what happened that we could, what we could naturally do when we were infants, replicate that outside of our bodies through technology. So that enzyme chymosin in the modern cheese making world is known as rennet. So baby mammals are actually making cheese in their stomachs. That's what they're doing. And real milk, real cheese is actually fermented. It is. So if we can take that enzyme, put it into the dairy, allow it to ferment. And by the way, um, Raw dairy has all the bacteria in it naturally to make every cheese on the planet, except for possibly blue cheese. There's, there's still a discussion about that, but it naturally ferments. It has the bacteria in it. If, if we allow that, if we coagulate it and we allow it to ferment, we control temperature and time and humidity to extract different flavors and textures and, and odor profiles that we want to, you know, to enhance that experience. We then have replicated what happens in our stomach and have made that food safe, nutrient dense and bioavailable. And the cool thing is, as far as lactose is concerned, which is something that nobody is talking about, is number one, raw dairy has lactase in it. It has yes. that enzyme to break down the lactose. We kill that enzyme off and we pasteurize the milk. The second thing is that when we ferment the dairy, the lactobacillus bacteria are called lactobacillus bacteria because the food for the lactobacillus bacteria is the lactose that's in the milk. And when it ferments, the lactobacillus bacteria eat the lactose, produce lactic acid, and as a result of that production, number one, the, the, the lactose levels either drop or com are completely eliminated depending on what you're making. And number two, the uh, pH drops and it becomes an inherently safer food because that pH has dropped. It is a win-win all the way around. And you know what? You can't ignore our tastes, our taste buds, right? <laughs> and yeah, I absolutely. think for the majority of people, you know, they've got a bit of a, a guilty, again, unfortunately, a guilty uh, relationship with cheese. Most people love cheese of different uh, flavors and varieties. I'm, I'm Greek, so we love halloumi, uh, you know, yeah. from Cyprus. And it is amazing. And I know that's pretty much lacto-free, right? There's, you know, by the point, because uh, that's fermented and it's done traditionally, you can only buy it through Cyprus. Um, and it just tastes amazing. Um, th th I'd never have any ailments of kind of, you know, lactose intolerance when I have it. It's perfect. And you can't ignore the fact our tastes have evolved to enjoy the foods that are nutritious for us. How can something so bad that is natural taste so good and yet should be bad for us? It, it, there's just so much inconsistency in that story. Um, mm. But one question I had for you is you, you speak about technology for milk and therefore why, why, when I hear that, I think fermentation primarily. 
Um, but if you have, if you do have a source of raw milk, uh, which I now have, so we have uh, raw milk coming into the house every week. Um, we are drinking the milk, you know, so it's it's got the enzymes, it's got the bacteria, it hasn't been pasteurized, so it's got complete proteins, it hasn't been homogenized, so it's got the full fat and everything that you'd expect from it, you know, maximal um, micronutrition. We are drinking that straight, we're not doing anything else to it. Mm-hmm. Are you suggesting that's not, not, not a good idea? Well, I, 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 the first thing I'd say is that is a lot better than any other form of, of drinking dairy whatsoever. And there are a few populations in the world, the Sam, uh, uh, Samburo and the Maasai in Africa are two great examples of traditional groups that drink raw milk that has not been fermented and do a great job with it. Uh, and the re- these, these guys are nomadic pastoralists, uh, especially during the dry season, the men and the boys take off to follow the animals who are just grazing um, and, and continuously grazing for about half the year. And the only food that they eat is raw milk mixed with blood from, from the animal and they yeah, drink right. it in its, in, in its raw unfermented state. And it's, I've tried it. It's actually fantastic. Yeah. But the, um, the, the reason they're not fermenting is because they're on the move literally every single day and they're not carrying around jugs of milk as it's fermenting. They've, they've done it. They do a very good job of drinking their raw milk. So there's, there's a little bit of precedent for that for sure. But I would suggest that, um, the most bioavailable way to consume dairy. And I might even suggest the, the best, uh, cause you mentioned earlier as well, the, the biggest returns in, in pleasure of eating it in, 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 in everything from, um, from taste to smell, to texture, to satiation could be, uh, fermented, fermented dairy. Yeah. Um, but, the um, if we have, I know we're probably running out of time, but if I could very quickly, uh, one point I wanted to make with the dairy is, um, again, knowing I mentioned it earlier, knowing how that's made. Now we, we just quickly described the cheese making at a very very basic level process and the value in it. Let me um, quickly say something about fake cheese, um, and I'm not even talking about American cheese or cheese was from a can because those aren't even on my radar. But what is you know something that's creeped up. Uh, while we weren't paying attention in grocery stores around the world is fake mozzarella. And I, I use this as sort of a poster child to make, to make a larger point and, and, and the, the, the need for connecting with our food so that we can't have manufact- food manufacturers doing this to us. To make, let me quickly describe the mozzarella process and tell you why it's, uh, a lot of the mozzarellas we have access to are fake and, and, and the problems with it. So when you make what we call mozzarella or pasta filata cheeses, and there's examples of pasta filata or stretch curd cheeses all around the world, from the Middle East to Italy to Mexico, um, what you need to do is you, uh, you, you take the milk and you start it fermenting and you coagulate the milk, separate the curds in the whey. And then you allow it to ferment down to a pH of, of, of 5.2. So if you can imagine what we do when we make cheese is we're replicating in a pot or a vessel what's happening in, say, a cow's stomach. So we, we have the same temperature, the same bacteria that are operating. We've coagulated the milk in the same way. And as the lactobacillus bacteria are consuming the lactose, the, it's producing lactic acid and the pH is dropping. And when it gets to a, it starts, milk starts out at about six, you know, high sixes, uh, 6.8 or so. And over time, as the lactic acid builds up, the the pH drops. And when it hits 5.2, if you heat up the curds, you can stretch them. 
and you can stretch them again into everything from um, Armenian string cheese to quesillo in Oaxaca or or mozzarella or provolone or provolone, all, all those ragusano, all these cheeses. But um, you have to hit that pH of 5.2. Depending on different factors, it usually takes about eight hours to go from milk pH to the pH of 5.2 to make that cheese. And during those eight hours, there's a massive amount of chemical and physical changes happening to that dairy in front of you. And one of the biggest ones is that the lactose is getting consumed by the bacteria to even produce that pH change. That's how mozzarella is made. Then you stretch it, you put it in a brine and you put it on a pizza or eat it, whatever. If you look at, there's another way in the modern manufacturing, food manufacturing world, which obviously sees benefits in making food as quickly as possible. You can achieve that same, at least on the surface, end product in seconds instead of hours by changing that pH through the introduction of something acidic. Vinegar, lactic acid, uh, citric acid, a number of different things can do it. So instead of waiting eight hours and having those chemical uh, and physical changes happening to this dairy the entire time, you're adjusting that pH in literally a second, making the cheese. It tastes similar. The texture is similar. The flavor is a little bit similar, right? You can tell a little bit, but for the most part, you've made that fresh mozzarella. Somebody's very excited to eat this and pay a lot of money for it. It gets into even the best health food stores in the world. They are completely different foods. And one of the biggest issues is if you're lactose intolerant. If you're lactose intolerant and you consume real cheese that's been fermented, you have either a greatly reduced or completely absent amount of lactose in that finished product. So, And that's the case with real mozzarella. But with the fake stuff, you might as well drink a full glass of milk. Actually, you might as well drink a full glass of pasteurized milk because the during, even if you're starting with raw milk, the uh, the way mozzarella is made, by the time it's finished, it's actually um, gone through enough heat that it essentially is pasteurized. So you have the full amount of lactose in that final product. And I finally became aware of this because people were asking me uh, quite a bit, actually all over the world, like, listen, I, I'm lactose intolerant. I do fine on, on aged cheeses. I do really well on yogurts and kefir. But pizza is hit or miss. Sometimes I'm fine. Sometimes I'm not. And I couldn't understand why until I actually turned over a package of mozzarella in, in an incredibly um, uh, well-known health food store here in the U.S. And almost all of the mozzarella that was in the, the store was fake and a completely different food. And again, just knowing how cheese is made can help you avoid you know, those sorts of circumstances. Really, really interesting. Thank you for that, Bill. And um, I, th I thought you were going to go in the, the route of the in the vegan fake cheeses, but let's not even go there. <laughs> let's not even oh, give geez. that any, oh, any, any credit. So um, I, I do have one other question as it relates to sure. the, you know, the kind of raw, um, sorry, we're talking about animal-based foods, right? And I, I know this this rhetoric is is met with a lot of disdain uh, in today's world, right? You know, where the vegan movement's so strong, the idea of promoting uh, and perhaps amplifying the amount of meat and animal-based products is going is flying again, flying in the face of you know activists and and just uh, suggesting it's a immoral compass to follow. I don't agree with that. I know you don't agree with that, and we, we've we've laboured that point. Uh, so far but there's one asp one um animal based food that i don't often hear people talk about yet i derive a lot of pleasure from and i know is very good for me yet um, i haven't had someone explicitly talk about it which is eggs so if you talk mm -hmm. about eggs in that evolutionary context i don't hear people talking about us domesticating you know chickens the dependence of us 
having to consume their eggs throughout our history as humans, it feels like it's probably more of a recent phenomenon, yet obviously very nourishing, dependent on, you know, protein scores, bioavailability scores, you know, the world, the world over, you know, purports uh, both the, you know, taste value and the nutritional value of eggs, yet are eggs, you know, poultry eggs, evolutionary consistent with us as humans? That is an incredible question that I will do my best to answer, but I don't have a solid answer for. Uh, um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know when chickens were first domesticated. I believe it was somewhere, or uh, it was thousands of years ago. I don't know exactly when, unfortunately. But I will say that most of um, the interpretations of the archaeological record and the dietary past do include eggs at, at a very early stage, not from necessarily domesticated animals, just but just something that's a part of the, the hunter, hunter-gatherer life where you're collecting eggs from, from wild species. Okay. Certainly. Um, so that's, that's number one. I, 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 again, I don't know exactly when um, uh, a lot of uh, birds were domesticated. I, I do know um, even here in the Americas that we had, uh, we had domesticated the duck and the turkey um, fairly early on, um, as one of some of the only domesticated animals here here in the New World, but no matter what that exact date is, it's still only several thousand years ago. Um, however, I don't think we should use that as the um, as a basis to to think about whether or not it to makes sense to them. eat eggs. Yeah, right, because eggs are incredible, and they are. If you follow that same model of what I've discussed earlier, um, you know. Eggs are one of these foods, just like milk, that is, uh, you know, designed to support new life at a time in the, the the animal's life when it needs it the most, right? Or at least one of the most times. You know, the, the, our nutritional requirements uh, as animals are highest uh, when we're first born and are developing, right? That when we're um, when females are carrying. Uh, mm-hmm. A, a developing baby inside of them, and then when um, we're, we're lactating, right, and the females are, are, are lactating, those are the highest nutritional uh, points in, in in their lives. And actually, of all three of those, the highest one for human females is when they're lactating. But um, if you think about that, you know, certainly in, in a bird, some of that is happening outside of the of the mother's body and happening inside of that egg. That egg is there to support new life. And by default is filled with incredible nutrition that we as humans can then access very easily. And the other cool thing about eggs is that, um, you know, a lot of that nutrition can be accessed without any additional technology after you get that egg. In fact, the entire part of that egg, including the shell, is edible and filled with all sorts, all sorts of nutrition. We, so in our, we, in our we mind – We do process eggs though, don't we? You know, seldom, do we, seldom do we just eat them without – Yes, and – but that and that processing, some of it can help with uh, unlocking some of the nutrients. But a lot of that processing is for, um, you know, for pleasure reasons, right? Because we like the taste or the texture of, of the egg when we cook it in a certain way. And there's nothing wrong with that because we're not losing nutrition when, when we do that. That in fact, you know, that's a part of the eating um, uh, experience that we should spend a lot of time thinking about because that's another thing that we do as humans. Besides share food, we enjoy food. In, in, in a, yeah. yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. I was just, I was just curious because uh, eggs play a massive role in our family. And we just instinctively, intuitively, and through the education we've received, we know that they're good for us and they taste amazing. It's so versatile. Yeah. I, I, when I hear about these ancestral discussions, I hear about ruminant animals predominantly. And then you hear about, you know, making plants safe. And that's the discussion we've had today. Seldom do people spend time to really give us the history of our consumption of eggs and how it's evolutionary consistent. Um, because where do you draw the line, right? You know, if we're talking about eggs, like uh, whose eggs? Uh, what, what, you know, we've decided to have chicken eggs, but you know, there are many, many birds that produce eggs, and we don't eat eggs from every species. So it, it's just a curiosity more than anything else. Uh, I don't think your answer would have changed my <laughs> relationship with eggs um but i think it's important it's important for people that are anti-eggs because there are quite a few people that say we shouldn't be eating these uh, uh periods of of chicken basically we should add, so first of all if, if it makes any difference i don't know if it does but eggs are a major part of my family's diet as well um and i do think so ethnographically um, you know, hunter gatherers around the world that are still in existence and have been studied in the early 1900s and in the 1800s, um, even in the 1700s, uh, collecting eggs from wild animals was a part of their, um, the part of their diets as well. And when I think about, when I interpret what a, a prehistoric hunter gatherer diet was like, certainly eggs collected from wild birds was definitely a part of it as well. Interesting. Cool. Well, that that, that seals the deal. <laughs> Fantastic, Bill. Bill, this has been brilliant. It really has. I know we run, we've we've run long. We might break this into two parts, but don't worry about that. What you've given <laughs> is absolute gold. So, I've loved every second of it. I'm sure our audience are going to do too. There, there was one final question I was going to ask, sure. um, and I will ask it. But um, in the interest of time, let's see if we can get there more speedily which is <laughs> um you know with the community that listens to to the work that i do both in the podcast and what i write um yeah people will probably say i'm pretty anti-vegan and i'm not anti-vegan i haven't got an axe to grind with individuals per se but i do have uh, i do get emotional about the misinformation that's being spread around the vegan movement and how it's the holy grail of nutrition and sustainability and ethics. And I strongly disagree that it's nutritionally better uh, for humans. Um, but one of the discussions, and I know that the, the movie Game Changers has come out and that's created a hell of a lot of debate. Um, yeah. But one of the things they state, state there is, and from, uh, from an archaeological perspective, there was a woman there that basically says, we were never designed to have meat. And you've kind of already agreed, right? That we anatomically don't have um, features that are indicative of carnivores per se, yet we have, from a trophic level perspective, been carnivorous for much of our history. I'm not saying exclusively animal-based, but lots of our diet, many, much of our nutrition from a calorie perspective has come from eating meats. So how do you respond to that, that, that we're, we're herbivores that have just taken the wrong path <laughs> and that we need to return back to our, our raw, you know, raw plant-based primate diet? Well, that's such a great question. I promise I'll get there as fast as I can. <laughs> <laughs> I've been a little, little wordy today, I know. Um, so this is how I respond to that. First of all, let me just say one quick 
one quick sort of disclaimer, and and I fully believe this. Um, you know, in, in a world that's so incredibly divided from uh, for a number of different reasons, um, it's such a shame that two populations of or people with 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 schools, two schools of thought, sort of. Um, you know the ancestral diet community, uh, which is largely uh, relies a lot on on animal foods, and the vegan community um, are so divided because inherently, if you if you go to the root of what all of us are trying to accomplish, it's the same thing. We are focused on diet and health. We're focused on sustainability, and we're focused on ethical approaches to food. And they they are the cornerstones. They are the pillars of what both of these communities are based on. And I give a you know, I give a lot of credit to the vegan community because, you know, they are so focused on that that, um, you know, it's, it's got to be incredibly hard to literally fight all of these evolutionary triggers that we have that are, you know, whether it's satiation or, or what have you and maintain a vegan diet despite that. And, and, and I wish we could all sit down at a table, you know, in a pie in the sky world and, and, and have a real conversation because I think we agree on more than what we disagree on. However, that said, um, I do inherently think a, a, a vegan approach to, to, to food is unhealthy it is not sustainable, and at some levels, and I'll defer to somebody like Lear Keith, who so eloquently talks about this uh, better than I do. Even on an ethical level, doesn't make sense. Uh, but, and I'll leave that there for a moment. But let me let me speak to the part that that I um, the ev- have a ev- evolution bit. piece, right? You know, are we yeah, are we herbivores that have just taken right? The wrong path? And, that, and that and that's the part that I that I want that that I can I think speak to. Um, so here's the issue: we and you even mentioned it. The, the argument uh, that you stated was a lot of vegans suggest that we're, we're not anatomically, you know, we're not built to eat meat, right? We don't have the same anatomical features as, as say, a carnivore does. And that's true, 100 percent true. In fact, we are our, – our digestive tract I, – I, I would tell anybody, our digestive tract is not designed to eat meat. And our bodies are not designed to hunt down animals and jump on them and rip them apart on the African savanna. I 100% see that. They, yes. But, but we, that's we also not don't have rumens, right? So we're also not designed Absolutely. to process we, in plants fact, in, in the way we that we are not designed. Yeah, 100%. We are not designed to eat most of the foods that we consume. And here's the you know. Here's the we should break that argument into two things. One is what are we designed to eat is certainly a question. Right. And th- but let's we, we, we stopped um, that question started to become um, uh, meaningless three and a half million years ago. Mm-hmm. The better question to ask is on what diets did we build these bodies? Be- and when we built these bodies, uh, we built them on diets that did not rely solely on our digestive tract and on our anatomical features to access these resources. We started three and a half million years ago developing technologies that accessed a variety of different resources we couldn't access without the technologies and to make those foods safe, nutrient-dense, and bioavailable. We created these bodies that we have now on those diets. We domesticated ourselves on these diets that are heavily technology dependent. And even though those technologies seem so rudimentary and simple, stone tools, fire, fermentation, whatever, they're powerful. And, and other animals te- don't do them. 
other animals don't do them. So if you're going to make the argument to say we're not designed to eat meat, then you definitely need to make the argument that says we're not designed to eat grains because you know what? First of all, the technology that goes into farming to create those grains is massive and nowadays you know, heavily fossil fuel based with lots of heavy machinery. And then even when you get that grain, if you ate that grain unprocessed, not only would you not derive any nutrition from it, the anti-nutrients in it would rob your body of nutrition, right? You'd actually lose nutrition from it. It requires, you know, heat. It requires fermentation. It requires grinding. So um, we are not designed to eat grains. We're not designed to eat meat. We're not designed to eat massive amounts of fruits and vegetables. But in fact, we built, and I know it sounds like the, these arguments are at odds with one another, but we built bodies on those very foods but in on those foods in conjunction with the technologies that process them before they even went into our mouths and that that is powerful because it's it's acknowledging that as you say we have developed and built who we are today off of foods that were not accessible to us that were either toxic to us previously or um yeah from a were, were dangerous because you know the animal could rip us apart versus the other way around yeah but in in spite of not being adapted for those, the creation of technologies enabled enabled us to have access to those that nutrition, and then thrive. And you know the counter argument is, hey, if you want to return to our primate primate like uh, dietary choices, well, you would need to be a primate, and you would need to go back to Homo habilis and you know be three three and a half feet tall and uh, <laughs> you know not have so, not have social skills and not have any <laughs> of the technological empowerment that you have today i mean like if that's the future you want then go lead that lifestyle but if that isn't the future you want you have to accept that over three and a half million years we've developed with animal-based nutrition at the center that that for yeah, me actually, is that the, the crux really well said. nicely done that was yes absolutely lovely well listen this has been phenomenal thank you so much um i want to make sure we close on giving you the opportunity to let the guys know where they can find you what projects you've got on things that you're passionate for people to learn more from as they terminate this this conversation and yeah want to know more about bill schindler oh, fantastic listen first of all thank you so much for the opportunity to, to, to share my work with your audience I, I really enjoyed the conversation and i love the work that you're doing thank you for for doing it um a couple things about the projects I'm working on. Uh, number one, you can find me on, on social media, on, on Instagram and Twitter and Facebook uh, at Dr. Bill Schindler. So D-R-B-I-L-L-S-C-H-I-N-D-L-E-R. And uh, we're always, we have, we have a fairly, um, we're fairly, um, uh, you know, we, we put a lot up on social media, so you can follow follow us that way. Um, I have a couple projects going on that people may be interested in, so uh, you can find information about those at, at my website, which is uh, drbillschindler.com, spelled the same way, and also at the, the my, uh, my family and I have uh, been working quite a bit on um, doing the same things that we we discussed here uh, during a lot of this podcast is translating this this information from the past, you know, evolutionary approaches, archaeological approaches, ethnographic approaches, fusing all that with modern culinary approaches to make this information accessible and relevant in our modern families, in our modern kitchens, in our modern lives. And you can find information about that um, at – we call ourselves the Modern Stone Age family. So we have two websites, modernstoneagefamily.com and uh, Modern Stone Age Diet, which is where we're really breaking this down into accessible ways. Most of my work is focused 
on connecting people with their food. And I, and I fully believe if, if, if I can help create that connection, people would then be empowered to make their own decisions and not rely on, on other people to tell them how to eat. Uh, so that you can find a lot of information about that there. I just completed a, a summit, which you can find information about at all those websites where I interviewed 32 of, of, of experts around the world that use the uh, our dietary pass as a platform to make the, uh, or at least for inspiration on, on approaches to modern diet and health today. And um, we are making available very soon, we'll be launching in the next couple of weeks, all sorts of online um, classes and workshops and, and coaching opportunities to um, bring this message into your own kitchens, both in person and, and virtually. And finally, I would suggest if you're in the area uh, on the East Coast of North America, come visit me. I'm the director of the Eastern Shore Food Lab at Washington College where we, in a very academic sense, um, do this very same thing, where we take for both our students and for the community, um, uh, we, we conduct a lot of, of teaching and a lot of research uh, and a lot of exploration in, in ways that we can take this information from the past and again, make it relevant in our, in our modern dietary lives. Amazing, amazing. I'm gonna make sure I get all of that in the show notes so uh, people can okay. click through to that. I, I will just close on this. I'm. I genuinely mean this when I say that the work you're doing is incredibly powerful. Um, it has meaning, it has meaning at the deepest level to be human, to understand, you know, what it takes for us to to thrive. And whilst I think what you're exploring and what you're exposing is simple, um, it's it's simplicity that we've forgotten or have just have grown to disrespect or ignore. And you returning us to a conversation of where where have we come from? How have we evolved? It's just so powerful. It's more powerful, I, I think, than religion or modern technology or social media or anything like that. It's like understand what's made you you from the genes you have to the skin on, on your body to the bones in, in, in your body. Like what is making you you? And, and not turning your back on that, not trying to create a new way of living that over the last 10 years has been popularized. We have to be evolutionary consistent. And to do that, we need the education. And you're doing doing an amazing job at help us understand that in an accessible way. And as you say, then translating that back into the kitchen. So I thank you sincerely. Uh, I know you're impacting my life and my family's life as we think about looking after our kids. And um, yeah, just keep up the great work. And I hope that we can keep in touch, Bill. Fantastic. Thank you so much. Yes, we definitely can. If you enjoy this show, please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. It really helps. And of course, recommend us to any friends or family who you think might enjoy the show. Feel free to get in touch with us via our website, adaptnation.io, or your favorite social media channel. This has been Adapt Nation. Till next time, thanks for listening.